The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Six. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain and rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread He ate what is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. And then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up, please, and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. And then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is God's holy word. Last week at our Thursday morning pastor's meeting, I was talking with the other pastors about the subject of preaching, and we were discussing the method that most of you know I use commonly of preaching systematically through whole books of the Bible, and therefore The subject is determined by the book and and what is there. And I said to them, you know, there is a disadvantage in this, and the only disadvantage really that I see in a good system is that there are some subjects which we don't get to as often as we perhaps would like to because it just doesn't arise in the course of studying different books of the Scripture. But I said on the flip side of that, There are other matters that do arise more often than if I were just, from my own imagination, kind of cherry-picking through different subjects that I might decide are important to preach on. And and given the balance of the two, I'll take any time the arrangement of truth as God has given it over what I would come up with myself. But one of those subjects that actually comes up more often than I probably would would go out and go after it is the subject of the Lord's Day or the Sabbath. As it occurred and came in this sequence on Luke, I was thinking to myself, I've been preaching to you or to this congregation for almost 17 years, and I would say this is at least the seventh time, I think, that I can recall preaching on the subject of the Lord's Day or Sabbath. 
Now, that's a pretty high proportion, topically speaking, in terms of what evangelical Christianity generally considers to be important in the world today. I would think in many churches this subject is probably not preached on very often at all, especially because it's one that American Christians have, by their behavior at least, largely dismissed as being all that important. But when we let the Scripture bring the subject up, I think we're surprised at the things God considers important. And broadly considered, when we talk about the Lord's Day, I think the the big subject we're facing is this. Will we set apart, regard as special, some all-important time in our weeks that is preeminently dedicated to the worship of God and to merciful care for His people and enjoyment of His creation. When we raise this subject of the Lord's day, many people say, well, I know what's coming in the sermon today. I can just hear it now. I'll get the list ready. The pastor's going to say, don't shop at the mall. Avoid having a job that makes you work on Sunday if you possibly can. Don't go to restaurants on Sunday. Don't go to pro sports events on Sunday. Don't mow your lawn on Sunday all right, we've talked about the list. Now we won't talk about it anymore because I'm not interested in the list. And I don't think it's what Jesus would have us think about here. In fact, if we did think about that and and go down that list, I think we're probably not much different than the New Testament Pharisees who had reduced the Lord's Day to a rule book and a checklist. So let's set aside the rule book and the checklist. I have a, a memory about the Lord's Day that's very vivid to me from, I believe the year was, 19, it was either 1976 or 77. Our family lived in Monroeville, where many of you know is one of the largest mall centers, and not just one mall, but a whole cluster of, of plazas and stores uh, that really serve the greater Pittsburgh area. And we actually lived on a feeder road that had an entrance right into the Monroeville Mall. And I remember how shocked I was one day that year, a long time ago, when I had heard about it that the Sunday blue laws, young people say, what are blue laws? Those are those laws that used to say what you couldn't do on Sunday, which meant almost all stores were closed prior to that time. The blue laws were being dropped. But this Sunday, I was absolutely shocked by the traffic on our road. I said to Carol, what what is going on? What are all these cars? And All of a sudden, it clicked in my brain, and I actually took a drive to see the mall parking lot, and I couldn't believe it. Because all of a sudden, the day Monroeville Mall opened on a Sunday, everything changed. And it's never been the same since, as you all know. Sunday is not the quiet day that it was once a long time ago when you just simply couldn't do a lot of things that you might have wanted to do. But yet I'm not somebody who's so nostalgic for that past that I would imagine to myself that the spiritual climate, the spiritual devotion of men and women in our country was necessarily any greater in those times when the civil laws forced you not to do certain things on the Lord's day. Luke 6, to me, is issuing a challenge that's something like this, and let me put it in this imaginative question. If your actual use of time during a given week were being researched by someone who was prosecuting you, 
What gods might you be convicted of worshiping based on your use of time? Now think about that. Where is the bulk of your time devoted when you have some discretionary power to decide about it? Now certainly there are things you do, daily work and so on, how, things around your home that have to be done. But when you have the ability to decide, how will I spend time? If somebody was building a case on you, could they convict you of worshiping certain gods based on your use of time? I think they probably could. For whatever you devote your premier time and attention to is the thing that will mold your life and claim much of the devotion of your heart. Christians ought not to expect civil government, and we certainly cannot any longer expect, civil government is going to be the enforcer that puts a fence around time for the Lord. So we have to live in a society where the fences are down and ask ourselves, are there any fences that we will build and maintain that will set apart good time for God to bless us and to meet with him week by week? The first consideration we look at in Luke 6, 1 to 4 is under this heading, Jesus falsely accused of Sabbath breaking. It's very important that you understand the point is Jesus falsely accused of breaking the Sabbath. The Pharisees, who always had their eyes on him and what his followers were doing, came in a minor thing and said, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? I want to give you some background to the Sabbath day as a whole here. First of all, by way of background, let us emphasize this, that when we speak of the word Sabbath and the words the Lord's day in terms of the Bible, we're talking about the same thing. Now, there are theologians who will argue with that. Was the Jewish Sabbath different from the Lord's day in the New Testament? For our purposes, they're the same thing. And we see that the Bible shows that The Old Testament Sabbath of the seventh day was transfigured into the Lord's Day, the main day of worship being on Sunday or the first day rather than the last day of the week. Why was that? The simple logic seems to be the day of Jesus' resurrection. The first day of the week was the day to be commemorated. Acts 20 verse 7 talks about them being together worshiping on the first day of the week. But there's another background issue, and that is the origin of the Sabbath itself. And if I asked people to tell me, well, where did the Sabbath originate? Many, many people would think, let me see, must be the law of God. Isn't it the fourth commandment? God speaking to Moses, Moses bringing commands from the Lord on Mount Sinai, and the Lord saying, remember the Sabbath day, the seventh day, and keep it holy. But actually, that's wrong. That isn't where it originated. The Sabbath originated from creation. You go all the way back to the second chapter of the Bible. Genesis 2 talks about the principle of the Sabbath and says on the seventh day the Lord finished the work he'd been doing and he rested from his work and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because he rested from it. Theologically, we call the institution of the Sabbath a creation ordinance something that didn't begin with the law of God. It began earlier than that in the creation itself. Marriage is another creation ordinance. Marriage didn't start out with Moses and the tablets of stone. It started from creation. 
God establishing principles to bless and regulate the lives of his people, and not just Israel, because we didn't even have an Israel then, all people. The Sabbath is a creation ordinance that brings good to mankind as a whole. Now then, a third point as far as background goes, still under this first main point, the Sabbath was enshrined in the law of God. Yes, the fourth commandment did establish it, enshrine it, and the Lord said, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. What does that mean? Well, if you look at the meaning of the word Sabbath, the word Shabbat in Hebrew means to simply to cease. Uh, I'm not sure exactly, but it, perhaps in, uh, if you went to Israel and the stop signs, I haven't observed stop signs in Israel. I was there once, but I don't remember what they had. But they could have put on their stop signs, Shabbat, stop. It's simply a word that means cease what you're doing. Come to an end. Now, people know that, and they say, oh, okay, Sabbath then is a day on which I just stop working, right? That's great. Everybody likes to get off work. Who doesn't like an extra day off or a vacation or personal day or whatever? We all like to get a day off of work. So that's what Sabbath is, a day off from work. Well, not exactly. It's a day that establishes a stopping or a rest, but for a particular purpose. And Exodus 35, 2 gives us that purpose when it speaks about the Sabbath as a rest unto the Lord. A rest, a stopping committed to the purposes of the Lord. In other words, a cessation in our schedule that allows us to be conducted into the presence of God to consider the things of God, the Word of God, to pray, to praise, to worship. It's a holy day set apart, but not just for sleeping in. Now, you, you do get to sleep in, I guess, on Sunday. Some of you do. I don't. But uh, I always love it, you know, when I'm greeting you. In the, in, uh, let me just tell you this, because some of you do this to me. Maybe it'll never happen again after I tell you. If somebody will say to me out here, Oh, pastor, did you see that article about and whatever it is? And I'll say, what? what? Where's this article? Oh, today's paper. Because I picture you as sitting there with your cup of coffee and you've read today's paper already. I was out of the house at 6.30 and didn't read today's paper yet, so don't ask me what's in today's paper. I'll read it later. Anyway, certainly it's a day to rest. Certainly it's a day to be with family. Certainly it's a day to see the beauty of God's creation in a more leisurely fashion. But it is primarily a rest unto the Lord, pointing us in the direction of knowing our God. All right, all that's background in this first point, but now still in the first point, why was Jesus accused of Sabbath-breaking for this minuscule little activity? You see what the disciples were doing. There weren't a lot of roads If you were going from point A to point B, you might have to walk through somebody's planted field or through somebody's orchard. And the disciples had their hands out and they walked along, probably absentmindedly, sort of gathering some grain and then doing this and letting the chaff drop off and boom, popping it in their mouth. Lunch. Were they breaking the law? No. As a matter of fact, they were actually obeying an explicit law in Israel which said that it was quite a lawful thing to do what was called gleaning. 
That is, taking some small personal part of a crop and using it for your own food. You remember Ruth doing that in, in the field of Boaz back in the Old Testament story. She was simply taking what was left over from the threshing. You couldn't go through the field with a basket, you know, and fill up your basket and then take it and sell it. That was stealing. But to simply take a personal portion of something that was growing in a field was actually allowed. Check Deuteronomy 23. You'll see the laws about gleaning in fields. So they were not breaking the law of Israel. Were they breaking any law? Well, they were breaking a lot of outside-the-Bible laws that the Pharisees had erected around the Sabbath day because what the Pharisees had said was, it looks like God didn't give us enough laws. We have to decide what work is. And work, let's see, you can carry one piece of firewood on the Sabbath, but if you carry three, that's work. They actually had 39 categories of law spelling out what work was. These were not given by God. They were given by the Pharisees. And they said, according to us, you're threshing a crop when you do that. Now, you say, silly, ridiculous. Well, let's look how Jesus responded to it. He didn't simply rebuke them or or say, no, this is all wrong. He told them a story. And he spoke from 1 Samuel 21, where David was still young David. He was anointed by God to be the next king. He was going to be the king of Israel. The prophet Samuel had anointed him, but Saul was still on the throne, the disobedient, ungodly king who hated David and wanted to kill him and was chasing him all over the land so David couldn't even get supplies or feed the band of men who were with him. Well, in that, you can look this up. 1 Samuel 21, David happened to come where the tabernacle, the tent worship place of Israel was. It moved around. It was at a place called Nob. And Ahimelech, the priest, was there. David came and said, Ahimelech, do you have any food? My men are starving. Ahimelech knew this was to be the king of Israel. He wanted to help him. He said, David, the only thing I've possibly got that I could share with you are the seven loaves that are baked once a week, as you well know, according to God's design and ceremony, and put on the altar in the tabernacle. They stay there, as you know, for seven days, and then we precede them. Isn't it great? The priests get seven-day-old bread. Pretty crusty, I would think, by that time. But But Ahimelech said, in his mind, now, this isn't actually written in Scripture, but you have to add up the mental process. David, you're the king. Your men are starving. That's a ceremony that God gave us, but I see your need as a greater need. Take that bread and eat it. And he did it with the high priest's permission. What's the point? Jesus is making the point in Luke 6, referring to the story of David that, look, first of all, you Pharisees have man-made rules about the Sabbath. Those are nothing. I don't even count them. But secondly, even the rules that God might make about ceremonies that are his ordained ways of doing it could be set aside if a human purpose of mercy was on the line. So if we might even set aside a ceremonial law of God for mercy, what do you think we're going to do with your man-made rules that are nothing? Jesus was falsely accused of Sabbath-breaking. And then in the second place, as we consider today, comes from his mouth the great statement in verse 5 here. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
is our second declaration today. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. A great truth is here. You know, there are people that can read this, Jesus saying, no, I'm not breaking the Sabbath, and they would think that he's saying, the Sabbath isn't important. It doesn't matter what you do. No, he's not saying that. What he really is saying is that the Sabbath was just a sign from God about the rest and salvation and new life that God wants to give. But now, the one who's going to give you that life, the Lord God himself in the person of his Son is here. And I, the Son of Man, am a greater person than the institution of the Sabbath. What does the Sabbath point us to? Rest in God. Oneness, unity with God, having the fences taken down so we're no longer alienated from God. And Jesus says, I'm the one that can do that for you. I'm going to come and go to a cross and bear your sins so you can be forgiven and you will be at rest with God. Not only now, but eternally. In Colossians 2.17, Paul said this. He wrote religious festivals and Sabbath days. He didn't say they don't matter. But he said they are only a shadow of things that are to come. The reality is found in Christ. Christ fulfilled everything that the Sabbath pointed to. And now he demonstrates that next by this little demonstration of a healing. You know, they, they, he knew they were, it says he knew what they were watching. They thought he was going to heal. Did he go off in a corner with the man with the withered hand? Say, come over here in the corner. Don't let anybody see your hand. I'll heal you. Nobody will know I didn't know. Do you notice how the text says? He said, stand up where everybody can see you. Put your hand out where everybody can see it. And when the man obeyed in faith, his hand was healed. In other words, he basically defied the Pharisees. And he was defying them and saying, is it not a great thing for God to bring life and healing to someone on his day when that's what the day is all about? It seems to me that if we take anything from that, we would conclude that Beyond worship, of course, worship is the preeminent day for us on the Lord's day, but, but beyond worship are acts of mercy, acts of fellowship, acts of sharing what it means to be a Christian with new hope and forgiveness in our hearts so that on the Lord's day we would take those computers and all of our instant communication and not just jabber to one another, but communicate with one another words of hope. Words that would build somebody up who's alone and suffering. Words that might remind somebody of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Use that phone call. Do any of you even write letters? I won't tell you to write a letter because nobody does that. But use whatever communication you do communicate by. And on the Lord's Day, communicate mercy and fellowship and strength to others who have need. You can't heal their hands as Jesus did, but you can bring the love of Christ into their lives. Well, thirdly, I want to try to apply all this. I ask you this in a concluding point. Who rules over the Lord's day for you? Well, if you don't know the answer to it, then I would say probably the secular world is ruling the Lord's day for you because that's the default position. If you don't swim against the stream in any way, the culture that says, hey, Sunday's just a day to do your pleasure, have a good time, relax, rest, that's all it's for. Society will lead you to do that if, if you don't 
have any other idea in your mind. Well, then there will be other competing agendas that will come along, and they'll gladly rule over your Sunday if you want. Your, your favorite sports team will rule your Sunday if you allow it to. Now, don't hear me wrong. I watch football on Sunday. <laughs> it, is golf on Sunday afternoon your goal? Go do it. We're not saying sports is bad, but is it going to rule the day? Is your hobby going to rule the day? Is your home decorating going to rule the day? Is the shopping that you couldn't get done during the week going to rule the day? You know what, parents? I'll tell you who wants to rule your Sunday, and some of you will know right away what I'm talking about. Your child's soccer coach wants to rule the Lord's day. You know what I'm talking about? I go 20 years back on this when my now adult male sons were playing soccer, and all of a sudden they were saying, no, we don't just play on Saturday anymore. Now we play on Sunday. And guess what? The big playoff is 9 a.m. Sunday morning. I had an angry soccer coach on the line who was told by me very calmly, I am sorry, sir, but your highest scorer is not going to be at the game at 9 a.m. on Sunday morning. If you were playing Sunday afternoon, he'd be there, but he won't be there at 9 a.m. And here's what the man said to me. I'll never forget it. He said, how can you as a father be so cruel to your son? I didn't even know what to say. He left me without a reply. Thankfully, I don't think my son believed I was being cruel to him. Parents, I suggest to you that we have to, have, we have to know what the fences are because everybody's wanting to take them down. And if they're going to be any fences, you better know where they're built. And there are going to be times, of course, when acts of necessity interfere, come up against the priority of worship for the Lord's Day. Billy Graham said something wonderful uh, many years ago. By the way, you might pray for Dr. Graham. I hear he's in really difficult health right now. But uh, he said this, I'll never forget it. He was talking about Jesus teaching the fact of of a necessity, an act of necessity that could happen on the Lord's Day. Of course, Jesus said, if your ox falls in the ditch, it's fine to pull him out. You know, and I mean, an ox is extremely important to a first century farmer. That's like if your tractor explodes on Sunday, it's okay to go buy a new one because you need it Monday morning. Well, Billy Graham said this. He said, if your ox falls into the same ditch every Sunday, you'd better tie up the ox or fill in the ditch. I think there's a lot of wisdom there. He was saying, look, let's establish our priorities. Sure, there are going to be exceptions. But are we going to make the day of rest unto the Lord to worship Him, to glorify Him, to pray to Him, to sing His praises, our number one priority? That's what the Lord is pleased with. You know, there's a figure that many of you consider to be one of the more forbidding men of the Reformation time, who you would have probably thought had no joy and no recreation in his life. That man is John Calvin. Remember how all all of his pictures look really sour? He had this long, pointy beard. He looked like he never laughed at a joke in his whole life. Let me tell you something you probably don't know. John Calvin enjoyed lawn bowling on Sunday afternoon. Lawn bowling! That's like the NFL in John Calvin's terms. But did it take away from his preaching, from his primary ministry, 
from the priority of what the Lord's Day was? Of course not. The Lord's Day is a day of rest unto the Lord. It's a day dedicated to Christ who is the fulfillment of what the Sabbath is about. And the reason God says don't go and just spend it like any other and be a consumer of material goods on that day is because what he's aiming at is you would stop being a consumer long enough to become consumed by the greatness of the tremendous holy God and his wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. I love Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. I leave it with you today. It's a verse you should know. Isaiah 58, 13. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and doing whatever you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight, that's the if part, the condition. Now here's the promise. Then... You will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land. Don't have a Sunday with a rule book and a scorecard, but a point a day that you ought to look forward to the way a bride and groom look forward to their wedding day each week. When you say, I am coming to the place of the Lord, his purposes, his greatness, His cross and resurrection are what will consume me and my praise. And you will learn to say and mean, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we pray that you would teach us this. We don't need more rules. We don't need guilt. We do need to revel in and be remade by the joy of who you are, the greatness of what you are, and the tremendous message you taught us when you sent Jesus to the cross so that we could say, here, I found the one who bears my burden and paid my price to bring me all the way to God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.